welcome back to Auntie Please, where we are everything we want to be, nothing you want us to be, and so much more. I'm Shia, and with me I have... Lama! Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which I'm recording from, the Bon Wurrung and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, past, present, and emerging, emerging sovereignty was never ceded, this was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, we had a chat with the amazing Dr. George Lee who is a urologist and I would like to say first of all that Shia and I learned so much about penises today like it's mad yeah <laughs> like you think you know but you actually don't <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah and he was generally a very funny guest um very funny person to speak to as well very knowledgeable we spoke about a lot of things to do with dick housekeeping, if I may summarize that by myself. You know, things that men can do in terms of um, good penile he- <laughs> health practices. Um, we even talked about Viagra use in Malaysia and in general, we even talked about circumcision and sort of touched on the myths and mis- misconceptions about whether it's hygienic, um, cultural, all of those things. Yeah, we also discussed things around infertility and how that's actually going to be, like infertility in men and how that's actually going to be increasing um, as we go, like in the generations to come, which is shocking and scary. Um, But there are preventative things that you can do, which he's also um, so kindly told us about. um, And that's mostly things about your lifestyle and the habits and behaviors that you do now, like as you're young. And we also discussed a fair bit on stigma and the feeling of shame and also toxic masculinity and how that plays a part in what in treatment seeking behavior in men so guys don't be ashamed don't feel um like you are sinning you know go and get the help that you need if you feel like you need that help and please listen to this episode because you will probably walk away feeling better and feeling less shameful of your sexual health and your penis also, you'll hear in the recording that I say the Australian HPV vaccine program came out in 2017. I meant to say 2007. Lols. But I was too excited. So yes, 2007 is when the program was released for women and 2013 is when it was for boys. But anyway, you'll know when you listen. All I have to say is that it's 2021. It's time to prioritize your pleasure. It's time to take care of that dick and see a doctor. So... Without further ado, babes, we present to you Dr. George Lee. Hello, everyone. Today, we are joined by Dr. George Lee. Before we get him to introduce himself, we're going to jump straight into the rapid-fire questions to get a little sneak peek into his life. Lama, take it away. So it's very simple. I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and you just respond with your reflex answer. Roti chanai or nasi lemak? Nasi lemak. Chakwitiao or chicken rice? Oh, definitely chakwitiao. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Um, tea for me, please. Mm. Gin or whiskey? Oh, gin and nice. tonic, definitely. Same, Ooh. same. <laughs> <laughs> um, cardio or weights? Cardio. Would you rather never get angry or never be envious? Um, used to be angry, but a lot calmer now. Okay. What is the best advice you have ever received? Uh, take each day as if it's your last day in your, of your life. So appreciate everything that happens today and don't waste a single second. I like Love that. that. 
Like if you that. die tomorrow, I feel like this is a good caveat from that last question, but if you die tomorrow, could you die in peace? Definitely. It's called contentment. So every day that you put down today and then you die in peace. And then that's a good advice that most people would, would take. Mm, interesting. What's one great thing to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic for you? Um, slowing down, you know, feeling slowing down. And one other thing, it's really fun growing vegetables. Growing vegetables? What kind of vegetables do you have? I have mighty cucumber in my balcony, which yeah. I'm really proud of. And then a little bit of aubergine. So cucumber Ooh. and aubergine is my thing. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Last question for the rapid fire. Would you rather know the uncomfortable truth of the world or believe in a comfortable lie? Well, I quite like to live in oblivious of not knowing the truth. So I quite like to be blissfully peaceful and then not really want to face the truth. Yep. That's the hard facts about life. And then yep, it's yep. easier for you to go to sleep and wake up and blissfully unaware of the yep. real truth. I think you're our first guest to say that. Yeah. Can't really bear the thought of the words coming to the end, the forest all disappearing and then mm. all the... Because you know what, life is really not that, uh, not that blissful. But you can make it as blissful as you want. True, true. Mm. I feel like there's something to like take away from that for sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So now that we're done with the rapid fire questions, tell us, Doctor Lee, who are you and what do you do for a living and what does your day to day look like as well? Many people would be shocked when I tell them what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a clue. I run, the, I run a column called Putting Dr. G on the Spot. So you can imagine <laughs> that, you know, what sort of things I do for a living. Yeah. Today, I am a sex guru. Mm-hmm. Um, many people think I am a sex guru, but uh, technically I'm not. I am a specialist in sexual health. Mm-hmm. So give me a bit of my background about how I ended up being a, a penis doctor or mm-hmm. a sex doctor. Uh, I'm a urologist. I'm also associate professor for um, medicine in Monash University. And I started as a transplant surgeon from Cambridge and then uh, move on to surgical specialty in Oxford. After 10 years of this eliteness of the Oxford and Cambridge, I went to London and spent 10 years in Imperial College London. And then so over these times shifted from a transplant surgeon to become a general surgeon to become a urologist. So during this time, I had multiple contacts with urologists because transplant surgeons do kidney transplant and then general surgery will deal with uh, urology as well. So people always ask me, why do you end up becoming a penis doctor? I always say that in Cambridge, I work for somebody called Nigel Bollock. In Oxford, I worked for somebody called John Dick. In London, I work for somebody called Andrew Ball. If you work for Dick Ball and Bollocks, you definitely become a urologist. You've been like primed this whole time. Your brain has just been like subconsciously like... <laughs> All those ball dicks and bollocks Subliminal messages. And, you know, look forward to my every single day <laughs> of making the world a better place. Love that. I love that. It's quite an impressive resume you have for yourself as well. Like, 
very impressive. Well, you know, if you are, um, you know, can actually work with bollocks, you can talk your way, uh, you know, <laughs> your way into those elite universities. <laughs> you know, I always call them uh, the English Disneylands, right? Okay, we, that's not the real world. Oxford and Cambridge, not the real world. Yeah. You can always lie your way in there. Yeah. Mm. Not impossible. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If I can get in, you know, a Kotabaru boy can lie his way. Yeah. Definitely worth a try. That's true. How long were you there for, like, overseas for? I was there from 86, way before you were born. Way before. <laughs> way before, and then way before, and left 21 years later. Seven years yeah. in Cambridge, three years wow. in Oxford, ten years in London. Wow. Must have been quite a transition coming back home. Well, people always say change is the hardest things you can do, but change is something that will actually ensure your life goes in more interesting uh, destination. So it's not about the destination truly, it is the journey. So Ooh. change is great. Obviously, you know, uh, a shift from uh, the comfort of the, uh, your future ascertained and all secured in UK and suddenly come to the melting pot of uh, Malaysia, even though I left home when I was 16 and then spent 21 years there. But I still find one thing that is really good Home is home. So yeah. there's nothing compared to home. And definitely I've been back for 15 years and it has been a wonderful journey and really, really uh, reminiscent uh, all the fun old days and still stick to Nasi Lemak and the Chakri Chow. <laughs> nice. It's good. It's good to keep okay. it fresh and also good to be connected to your roots as well. So that's everything about you as a urologist. And today we're going to be asking you questions predominantly about, yes, as you said, penises and sexual health surrounding all of that. So let's jump into the first question. Yeah. So should men visit their urologists regularly in some capacity? We always hear about making sure women or people with vaginas or uteruses visit their gynae. Um, so is that the same for our male counterparts? Mm-hmm. So we always assume men will go and visit their doctors on a regular basis. Wrong. Men will service their car more often than they actually service their own body, which is a very strange concept. Yeah. I think it's probably due to two reasons. One is a conspiracy. I think there's a conspiracy favoring women because if you imagine that the women set up for healthcare, it's very robust and actually ensure that women go and see doctors on a regular basis. For example, if a woman's probably start uh, menstruation, your mother will take you to see a doctor. When you're pregnant, you're not sick, you go and see a doctor. And then when you give birth, you do a baby check, you go and see a doctor. Whenever you have menopause, you go and see a doctor. So gynecologists and doctors will see you through your journey of life from cradle to grave quite regularly, just like how a man's car is being serviced. However, across the world, most men will only go and see a doctor when they're ill. So contrary to what people will commonly believe that men don't men only men go and see doctor regularly and then uh, it doesn't exist because urologists actually look after women as well 30% of our patients are women for example women also suffer from kidney stones uh, suffer from mm. kidney diseases renal cancer bladder cancer incontinence recurrent urinary tract infection so therefore 30% of our patients are women however we like to think we are the advocates for men's health because mankind is not too kind to men. So in a way, 
answering that question indirectly, we although quite like men to go and see doctors on a regular basis, just like how they can ensure that their car is serviced on a regular basis, but most men don't do that. Mm. They don't do that for several reasons. One, I highlighted earlier on this conspiracy with more setup favoring women because there's no men, uh, kind of like a, a doctor equivalent to a gynecologist that only looks after men. On the second uh, thing is that contrary to what most people think, men are very macho or deal with any uh, problems in life. In fact, they are very fearful of getting ill because in the whole concept of men's masculinity, and that's a very big challenge to their ability to lead and ability that uh, their, their ego get bruised. And then because they have quite fear um, concept fearful concept of such uh, indentation of their ego, and then they tend not to go and see a doctor with that so fearful. Therefore, answering my question, my firing round to say being blissful, even though there might be a huge obstacle in front of me, I'm a typical man who will probably be uh, quite apprehensive about knowing the truth, especially when it comes to your own health. Mm -hmm. So answering that question directly, now, men don't tend to go and see a doctor on a regular basis like women do. Mm. But should they? They should, because yeah. I'll give you one simple fact. We know across the world, from Swaziland to Japan, which are the lowest life expectancy in the world to the highest life expectancy in the world, you actually know that women outlive men by at least five years across the world. And one of the reasons why, of course, you would imagine that men are just naughty. They drive fast cars, they drink too much, they smoke too much. There's an element of that. However, the other element that when they present with medical condition, they tend to present late. And that's the reason why when men and women, even though women get ill more often uh, statistically, but women survive that illness a lot better than men. Therefore, answering your question, they should. And because they don't, their life expectancy is at least five years lower than women. Mm, wow, it's really interesting how it's like the concept shocking. of masculinity definitely just like play a role in the like stigma that you know men put on themselves and you know just surrounding getting the care they need when they feel and they could think something is wrong, but they just kind of push it to the side because they're like, nope, it's fine, I shouldn't have to seek out help. I can get through this by myself. Is there, like, if you if you could say, is there a certain time that they should start seeing a urologist, like, you know, at a certain age or... Yeah. Well, most men would imagine that you only see urologists when your prostate is getting too big. And then that is a misconception because men will run into problems with multiple, multiple facets of their life. For example, the simple things like the foreskin. Their foreskin may be trouble from day one that they're born. And then that itself uh, it will warrant circumcision or on regular cleaning advice. During sexual maturity, then obviously their body changed. The testicle become bigger and then they might get issues such as wet dreams and you know uh, concerns about masturbations. And they really, really have nobody to go to. If they, their parents don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it, then there's nobody they can go to in order to discuss that. So adolescence, men development is another issue. And therefore, that may induce a lot of mental health issues, such as depression and also being um, withdrawn from social connections. Beyond that, 
that's when men run into problems having naughty kind of like lifestyle because by nature testosterone make them into risk taking behavior so they will have uh, sexual contact for example which is uh, you know unprotected they probably are more likely to uh, try to drink more alcohol and that sort of issues and that's when they start having problems with their health in general and later on obviously issues such as cancer cancer of testicle happens between 18 and 35 and many people don't know that they assume that cancer only happen in older people so yeah. cancer can happen as early as um in fact the peak of testicular cancer actually uh, is about 25 years old contrary to what people commonly believe that can testicular cancer only happen to older men and lastly the prostate will grow and men will encounter problems with aging when their testosterone drops for a woman that testosterone uh, that uh, menopausal symptoms will become quite marked so they will go and see doctor and then advise get advice for that but when the testosterone drop is quite gradual and then their bodily uh, their body changes become quite gradual as well then that's when they get ill because without the protection of testosterone they may get into problems with diabetes high blood pressure dyslipidemia and also other issues such as cardiovascular event so therefore all these are the changes in the body that will give you um, indication that is from cradle to grave they really need to go and see a doctor however there is no doctor that they can see because in a malaysian setting where gp which is uh, somebody who has your complete um care that uh, you know pro provide that holistic care doesn't exist because um in other settings such as uk australia that sort of setup actually help men to be invited for regular checkups but in a malaysian setting many consumers go for doctor shopping they only go and see doctors in a shop lot when they're ill therefore that really compromise on their overall health in totality so it's also like in a way about like preventing or like being able to foresee mm -hmm. these things that that could happen before it actually happens through regular like checkups and the most important thing actually is their knowledge and awareness mm -hmm. and then therefore um you know from day one they really need to know what sort of um medical condition will affect them and therefore from day one they really need to know how to look after themselves and then also get advice when they get into trouble absolutely and i think like similarly to how women you know are asked to examine our breasts regularly just to feel if we have like abnormalities or lumps etc is there something similar that you know men and people with penises can do in terms of their like penis and prostate health Yes. I mean the most common thing that a man can do self examination is their own testicles because testicles obviously they're playing with the testicle from day one. And then to feel the <laughs> testicle to find out whether there's any changes to it. For example, the testicle that is cancerous will feel hard and they will be nodular. And most men will assume that cancer is painful. Sometimes men turn up to my clinic with a testicles the size of a small tennis ball and they themselves actually are shocked they say that but doctor it's not painful and that sort of things actually will be prevented much earlier if they notice anything wrong with their testicle they can come forward 
Apart from testicle, they really have nothing else that they can do self-examination. For example, prostate enlargement is something that a doctor can examine, but patients themselves cannot examine because it will require putting a finger up the bottom in order to feel the prostate from the anus. Therefore, patients themselves cannot do self-examination. In my advice, we look at the things that kill men the most, and that is cardiovascular disease. Perhaps men should examine themselves more regularly with a very simple thing, such as a blood pressure, and measure that on a regular basis. On top of that, to go to, have, uh, to a local pharmacy or a local GP, just to get their blood glucose checked from time to time and get their uh, cholesterol checked from time to time, I really think that is a lot more helpful to prevent more men getting into cardiovascular yeah. diseases. Yeah. Um, next question. Mm. What are the most underrated penile health practices that people don't typically do? Um, and is there a lot that can be done? I guess you've kind of already answered this to some capacity, but is there anything else? Right. For In Asia, the practice of circumcision at the early age is not as prevalent as United States, for example. So I guess for the most basic penile health that ones need to be doing um, and grossly underrated is hygiene. The easiest thing for men to do is just to pull back their foreskin and wash inside on a regular basis. When I say to men that you need to do it twice a day, then they are shocked. Some of them actually do it probably twice a month. And then that is, imagine how smelly it is. Lord. Pull back a lot of things in there has stigma. And imagine the word smegma itself, just to look at it, you know, and during sexual health, you expect your partner to put that in the mouth. Gross. Yeah. In that sort of mm -hmm. thing, so men are shocked whenever they are told that they have to clean inside their foreskin. Another underrated fact is that many men didn't even know they can pull back their foreskin and they should pull back their foreskin because sometimes the foreskin is so tight, a condition called phimosis, and then they manage to get away with it without even seeing what the glands of their own penis look like for the mm. 35 years. It's only the time when they try to uh, conceive or after they get married, when they realize penetrative sex is impossible and incredibly painful. Mm. And that's when they go and see doctors that nobody tells me. So that part of penile health is something that is underrated. The other part of penile health that is underrated is one part called the genital ward. Obviously, for women in the newer generations like yourself, you begin to have the benefit of getting HPV vaccine because we all know that HPV causes cervical cancer. HPV technically is the most common sexually transmitted infection. It is the virus that is transmissible from contact of one sex organ to another sex organ. So where is the other sex organ coming from? It's from the guys. And then therefore, Australia is doing a wonderful job in eliminating cervical cancer. Australia noticed from day one that in order to eliminate cancer, it's not just giving girls the HPV vaccine, but eliminate the boys' HPV as well. So the penal health that the rest of the world is not eliminating and will catch up, I hope, is actually being vaccinated as well. So men get really concerned when I say to them, you need a vaccination of HPV vaccine. They say, but I don't have a cervix. But the problem they have is that the penis 
may have the virus that is invisible, but worse still that they may have genital wart that is constantly there and infecting their female partner. Therefore, we will see this in many, many parts of the world. Australia will be the first country that will see cervical cancer eliminated within a generation. And all those countries that ignore the um, sexual health or penal health of a man and not really vaccinated the young boys, they will see that they will have one generation of many, many women dying of cervical cancer because the boys are not vaccinated. So that is the other grossly underrated penal health in a generation. And that is scandalous. Yeah. I literally had this yeah. conversation somewhat recently with some friends who are doctors, are young doctors, and I was questioning, like, why is it that only the girls were being vaccinated for it? For like, because like clearly the guys weren't. Because um, it doesn't make sense. Because it affects both. It affects both genders, right? So like, why wouldn't you also vaccinate the men? But I guess it was also from a perspective of like cost and resources and things like that. Yeah. When you take into the perspective of cost and also in guys, when it affects the men, it's only affecting a genital ward. As a result, it's self-inflicted and also it is not as serious as cancer. Mm. When you look at that perspective, the boys don't deserve to be vaccinated. But when you look at the perspective, what Australia is looking at is that if the boys are not eliminated of the disease, you can never get rid of cervical cancer. Then you realize how serious this is. In the 1970s, before any one of you were born, and then there was a condition called rubella. Mm. Rubella used to be called the German measles that makes women infertile. For 10 years, they just vaccinated the girls because they think that it's a disease that affects the girls. Only 10 years later, they realized that they couldn't get rid of the disease unless the boys are vaccinated as well. And therefore, it took them one whole generation, missed out a generation, that they could have saved many women from suffering from infertility. And we are unfortunately seeing the same thing that is happening to HPV vaccine. Wow. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And actually, I learned about like how Australia stands across the whole world in terms of like HPV vaccinations and screening, because I'm doing a subject on epidemiology. And one of our tasks was just to like find out of these things. And everyone was focusing on COVID vaccines. And I stumbled upon an article, a general article about Australia's history and like yeah in, in 2017 they had a program that um was actually put out to the high schoolers so secondary school um students and the young girls and I think a couple of years later they actually made that um that program to include um the young boys as well and as you said they've seen like a huge decrease in like the presence of general warts as well as like HPV um notifications in the last couple of years so that is really fascinating Australia will be exemplary because within the next 10 years, you will see almost complete elimination of cervical cancer. And the rest of the world, unfortunately, will have one lost generations of hundreds of thousands of women getting cervical cancer because the boys are not vaccinated. It's so sad. It's so sad when the cause is, when the solution is so simple and yet no one's really doing anything about it. Yeah. Mm. What can young men do to really take charge of their um sort of penile health and 
Are there any other practices that they should be aware of? Most importantly is to eliminate that stigma. So majority of men are very shy about their genitals, you know, and then, you know, for example, they get very curious about uh, whether they have, um, you know, good enough size penis, whether the foreskin is too long, whether, you know, the penis is bent in one way or, you know, the testicles is one side is bigger than the other, the other droop further down or not. And all these are puzzles that they can't talk to anyone. Obviously, they can't compare with their friends, but yet that stigma makes them high in shame. And then that itself will create withdrawal. So therefore, the advice that I will give young men is that, first of all, it's your body. No matter how your body you know, comes in shape or sizes, you really need to, first of all, love your own body and love and look after that body. So before you actually can love your body, you need to know your body. So knowing that, it, it, there's a individual variations of different size, different shape of penises. And then that is goes without saying. So that whole myth and also commercializations of people wanting to get your um, cash in on your inferiority, like telling you that you want a bigger penis, you want a bigger testicle, you want to be here doing all these things. And then that itself is something that is probably drying men to have that inferior complex. And therefore, when we don't have these stigmas, like many countries such as Amsterdam and in Netherlands, that there's no such stigma, the sexually transmitted infection drops significantly. And then the issues about men having undiagnosed testicular cancers or having suicides because they have inferiority complex about um, you know, their body um, uh, you know, inferiority complex, and then therefore, we really should learn a lot more from countries such as Netherlands when they actually make sexual health less of a taboo and majority of people will find it. There's nothing uh, 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 that is uh, so shameful, shameful yeah. about you know, uh, different size penis or anything like that. So I would urge that you know, for men to, first of all, uh, wanting to have self-care of your own genitalia is first of all, recognize that everybody is different and then recognize that when it's functional, it's all right. However, when they feel like they have any question, don't have any shame, don't have any barriers, talk to your brother, talk to your father because they went through the same thing. And then eventually, if you still can't talk to anyone, talk to a doctor who can perhaps give you some guidance because a number of people turning up to our clinic they are so shy about what happens to them. They will beat round the bush to say, oh yeah, you know, I have frequent urination. I maybe have pain somewhere. Then eventually when they feel comfortable, they will build that rapport and only come clean. So it's a shame that men has to do that out of fear, out of shame, out of taboo, out of stigma. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely sad. And I love that, yeah, as you said, to normalize the conversation around their sexuality as well as with their peers. I feel like that's something that I realized that a lot of the men in my life lacked as opposed to me and a lot of the friendships I have with other women is that we have that space to talk about things that are happening with our body and our sexuality. And I feel like it's a lot more open and easier to have that conversation as opposed to, yeah, the men in my life and their peer group. So 
listen to this out there, men. Normalize these conversations. And if you're still shy, see your doctor. They're there to give you help and give you the information and tools that you need to navigate all the things that are happening with your body. Yeah, and that's precisely why conversations like this and having like professional guests such as yourself um, is really important to so that they know and the information is out there and it's public that it's okay to get this help and that you should be seeing professionals. Um, don't be um, don't be fooled by uh, many of the uh, commercial institutions or black market trying to lure you in to do something stupid out of uh, to tap into and catalyze on, on in your inferiority complex. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why all the spam males is coming towards uh, many men you know, telling them that they need to have a bigger penis, they need to go for all sorts of injections and all sorts of things. And a lot of time, they ended up having huge problems of infection, disfigurement, and sometimes even seriously amputated penis because of gangrene. And then a lot of time, it's just out of um, shyness and fear that they go underground. And then that is very common when men are too shy, they will go for counterfeit um, blue pills because they have nowhere else to go to. Yeah. Speaking of blue pills, next question. (laughs) Is Viagra use common in Malaysia? And if yes, when is the use of Viagra appropriate and when is it not? Okay. So, I mean, obviously, um, Viagra actually was discovered, again, way before you were born. Do you have any idea how long ago Viagra came to the market? (laughs) No idea. It was a it was a long time. Well, like, like I was literally listening to a podcast like two weeks ago that talked about the history of Viagra, and it was like they weren't even trying to find this drug. It was like a surprise discovery from a study. I don't know. Yeah, Viagra actually was uh, investigated as a blood pressure t- uh, tablet. And then it was tested in South Wales in the United Kingdom. And then they gave one group of patients the real medication. The medication is called sildenafil. And then the other group is placebo. And then about two, three months later, they realized that it has no impact on blood pressure. So they recruited all the medicine back. And then they realized that the wives of the people who were on real medicine refused to give them back because it awakened the krakens. Basically, all these men who had blood pressure problems, they were really having problems with erectile dysfunction. And then when the Viagra, uh, you know, basically woken up the dragon, and then so the wives were very happy, and then that's how the medication were registered in 1998. So it's been 23 years since the medication is in the market. So it's been a long time. So since the medication has been in the market, the name Viagra is a trade name belong to Pfizer. So the formulation of this medication is called sildenafil. And then the drug is now available in generic forms in many, many countries because the patents has run out in many countries. So therefore, is it common in Malaysia? Extremely common. And then, you know, we can get uh, the medication from pharmacy, from urologists, from GP. And then a lot of people sadly, can buy this over, um, you know, internet and because there's widely supplied. So when it's appropriate, Viagra is purely used for men with erectile dysfunction. However, sometimes it's perceived as a recreation drug. You know, it it itself is a very simple uh, molecule of formulation that it purely is something called a vasodilator. Basically, it just opened up the vessel and happened to 
affect a group of the um, receptor in the penis called PDE5. When PDE5 that reside in the penis is activated or inhibited, and then the blood flow to the penis is enhanced, and then erection can happen. It's contraindicated in two groups of patients. One type of patient is called uh, retinitis pigmentosa. It's a condition that affects the retina of men, and that's quite rare. However, the other one which is contraindicated is men who take GTN and angina medication. When they take this medication, then there is a risk of sudden death. Believe it or not, since 1998, Viagra or Sildenafil is the most scrutinized drug in the planet. Because initially, when it comes to sexual health, people were really worried that this is a drug that's going to kill men up, like, you know, up and down the land. And it's so scrutinized that we know the drug so well. So they has minor side effects. Men who take that might get flushing, slight headache, and also might be getting a little bit of indigestion and, um, and a bit of uh, kind of like um, you know, uh, discomfort in the tummy. But apart from that, they sometimes can get blurred vision because it affects the back of the retina and then or blue vision. So the vast majority of these are very, very minor problems. But it is very efficacious. It's a drug that stood through 23 years of marketing. And then it actually is so effective that it can help between 80 to 85% of men who suffer some erectile dysfunction. So widely available. However, we always assume that men should really seek help before they start the medication for two reasons. Most men has a reason that they ended up having erectile dysfunction. And they probably don't know they suffer from diabetes, high blood pressure, dyslipidemia, obesity, and all these things can be rectified and can help them to have a better overall health. The second thing is that not every man knows the routine of taking the medication. For example, we need to advise the patient to take the medication with empty stomach. We need to advise the patient to avoid alcohol when taking the medication. We need to advise the patient not to have fatty food when they take the medication. All these are the maneuver to help them to achieve higher efficacy. And we also need to explain the side effects of the medication. So therefore, they don't get so fearful to think that they have a heart attack. So it is not really worth men's while to risk your own life by purchasing the medication over the counter or without seeing a doctor. So therefore, we tend to ask patients, perhaps for first consultation, to uh, see a doctor. Once you get the things going, then the magic happens between the sheets all along. Nice. Wow. I was today is today is old when I realized that Viagra is as old as I am. <laughs> so new information yeah. that. Also, what happened in uh, nineteen ninety eight when you were born? Uh, as far as the White House is concerned, in the USA, that's the year no. that Bill Clinton was impeached for the Monica Lewinsky scandal. <laughs> Look, there you go. What can I say? When I mentioned this in the Monash lecture, and then one of the students asked me, who is Monica Lewinsky? <laughs> well, at least didn't ask me who Bill Clinton was. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know whether there's any associations of the Blue Pill, Bill Clinton, and Monica Lewinsky, 
but I'm sure there's a scandal in between that 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 correlation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can I say? 1998 was a very chaotic year, and thus born the most chaotic person ever. So I I, I feel like there could be some relation there somewhere. Um, I have a very interesting question that a friend asked me as well to ask you, but there's this. I don't know whether it's a myth or misconception, but are uncircumcised penises really less hygienic or perhaps more prone to infection than circumcised ones? And what are your thoughts on circumcision from a functional point of view? Okay, that's a fantastic question. And I like the way to say, my friend asked me to ask you. <laughs> In the clinic, I always get this question. Say, my friend asked me to ask you about... His- he, will, he will listen to this. He will listen to this and be like, thanks for asking my question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very common question. A lot of our listeners... You know, I always say question. to the patient, yeah, your friend must be a very good friend. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, wonderful, wonderful question. Let me give you a statistic. When Bill Clinton and Marinda, uh, uh, no, not Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, you see, Clinton is in my head now. <laughs> Bill Gates Foundation actually trying to um, do a trial to reduce the risk of HIV transmission in sub-Sahara Africa. They came up with a concept that what exactly what you said is that uncircumcised men are more prone to infection and is less hygienic. So they decided that one group, a large populations of sub, um, sub-Saharan African men were circumcised in adulthood. The other half actually were just left to have normal sexual function. Then they realized that men who were circumcised, the transmission rate for HIV was significantly reduced. And therefore, that opened up a huge campaign in order to circumcise more men so that at least they can reduce the HIV transmission in uh, Sahara Africa. So that opened up many, many questions and many research. In fact, it found out that men without foreskin has less risk of HIV, less risk of syphilis, herpes, HPV, and also gonorrhea and chlamydia. So we know that men without foreskin are actually protective of sexually transmitted infection. I said protective in the reduction of the risk, but not completely uh, eliminate the risk. Obviously, we know that men without foreskin also get STI, but it reduces the risk. The reason is very simple. The protected gland of the penis is moist and the skin itself is more fragile. So the bacteria and viruses can get in easier. And the actual foreskin itself may actually rub on the glands a lot more vigorously when they have sex. And that itself can traumatize the fragile skin. And that itself can transmit viruses and bacteria a lot easier. So that begs the question. One third of the population in the world have no foreskin because they are removed for religious and hygiene and family practice purposes. However, the other two thirds have foreskin. So who makes better lovers? There are huge arguments all the time. Do men with foreskin last longer or do men without foreskin last longer in bed? And also do men with foreskin have harder penis or men without foreskin have harder penis? There are huge number of studies that has been studied. And one review that looks at all these studies and realized that there's no difference between men with foreskin or without foreskin. So we can safely say 
that it's probably choice that people make when they want to remove their foreskin. For hygienic purposes, for medical purposes, for religious purposes, what they need to know is that in order to take that risk of wanting to have circumcisions, you also need to undergo a little bit of the operation itself because the operation itself, it's not exactly risk-free. Some people may get a botched procedure that causes infections or scarring and so on and so forth. So overall, although there are benefits, but one needs to make the decision carefully because we shouldn't circumcise everyone. If somebody, a man who can keep their foreskin very clean, wash it twice a day, always dry, always make sure that um, after sex, they clean regularly. And therefore, keeping the foreskin is also beneficial because the foreskin itself allows the gliding of the penis into the vagina or any orifice. And then that itself serve its purpose because every single part of our body has a purpose and that is the purpose of this foreskin mm-hmm. yeah so that was going to be like my follow-up question which is is it a matter of personal hygiene versus you should get circumcised and like you were saying that unless you're able to you know keep track of the cleanliness of it and like really ensure that you clean it like it shouldn't be a problem is that a fair assumption to make Obviously, if the practice is cultural, for example, um, uh, let's say religious and that sort of thing, we put that aside because obviously under that circumstance, it is um, under a cultural reason. Mm. However, when it comes to medical reasons, and then uh, we um, really encourage men, first of all, to look after themselves, to penile health by washing and uh, cleaning on a regular basis. If despite doing that, they're still getting regular infection, then we will encourage them to have a circumcision. Because in many countries, this is practiced electively. A child is born, day seven, chop the foreskin off, just as a cultural thing. But people begin to question that. You know, is this a mutilation in a way? Right? And then obviously, you know, we will get shot if we start siding which side it is or it isn't. But I will cite you a legal case in, the, uh, uh, in Germany when a doctor actually performed a circumcision on a child on elective basis. Because of the circumcision, the child actually ended up with complications of infection and actually quite severe infection of the penis. The court ruled that the actual procedure was not medically indicated. It was done for elective reasons. And the doctor was jailed for uh, grievous bodily harm. Mm. So in a way, the court is right that if this is for the purpose of future um, health, and then you're doing this procedure, is um, may or may not be indicated. But there is a risk there. But if you just do it blindly without thinking of pros and cons, you are held responsible perhaps on a charge of grievous bodily harm. Mm. Yeah, because we it's so it's a lot easier for us to look down on FGM, on like female genital mutilation, right? And like we know that that's wrong. Um, and I guess because there's no actual functional purpose of it, um, it's more of like a cultural thing. But in for men, it's something that's it it can be functional. Um, yeah. In in a way, the function itself is um, is there evolutionally, but mm. 
um, it can also be um, the penis is also functional without it. So yeah. in a way, it's like a bonus. However, um, in there are many movements in United States that they try to restore their foreskin because after being having circumcised mm-hmm. as a child, they feel like they don't didn't have a say in this. Some of them mm-hmm. to their parents, you know, for for performing the procedure without their consent. Yeah. Some of them started restoring. They started using different sort of uh, maneuver like traction and hook and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You just need to Google, um, you know, foreskin restorations, and then you can see that. It's a huge market of people um, who are trying to help themselves to restore their foreskin. So on many bases, mm-hmm. it's a very culturally sensitive subject. And then every time we mention it, we will have heated argument of people who are really pro it for the hygiene purposes, for religious purposes, who are really against it because they look at it as a mutilation and unnecessary mm-hmm. yeah. operation. I've got some friends who have um, circumcised penises, but it wasn't for religious purpose. Their parents, like their family had decided to do it for like a more like hygienic purpose. And they, and obviously this happened when they were like babies. So they didn't have a, a say. And now they feel like, you know, like it's crossed some kind of um, boundary and they feel like, you know, it's against their will and that they've been like genitally mutilated and they always say things like, oh, like, if this didn't happen to me, I would have um, more sensitivity, I would have, like, you know, better erections, or, like, everything that comes with uh, sexual pleasure, really. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think we'll see more and more of that, because um, at the end of the day, it's a dialogue that we are creating, because, you know, to brush it on the carpet, um, to say that this is how it's been done for generations, I think at some point, many decades down the line, Many people will question to say, who started this first, you know? Mm, yeah. Wow. So interesting. I feel like I've cleared up a lot of my own personal myths and misconceptions about circumcision. <laughs> uh, 